And of course, isn't that the way everybody wants to answer their telephone and hear Dion Taylor on the other end of it? And that's what the first thing you hear. Um, yes, Dion Taylor. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. I felt that Dion's laughter in, into the phone to me last week when I picked up my phone um, fit Halloween. He has that kind of Halloween laugh, I think. Uh, but welcome to... Another episode of Behind the Lens, the last week of October 2019, coming into the home stretch for the end of the year and the start of a new decade. Um, again, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers and, and movie makers, uh, veterans. Uh, newcomers, independent films, blockbusters, writers, directors, uh, producers, costume designers, production designers, sound editors, video editors, FX people. We talk to them all. And uh, today we're going to talk to a couple of, actually three very fascinating people about some very fascinating films. We're actually going to take a, a trip uh, through cinema into the history and culture of India. We're going, uh, renowned Michelin star chef turned filmmaker Vikas Khanna is going to join us to talk about his film, The Last Color, which is his directorial debut. Uh, and then we're going to have a mother daughter combo, uh, executive producer, co writer, and star of the film, Devika BC, and her mother, writer, director and costume designer Swati BC are going to join us to talk about their film, The Warrior Queen of Yancey, which is a true story. Uh, it starts in 1857 in India in a war against the British East India Company. Uh, it really kicked off the battle for independence uh, for, uh, for the uh, people of India. Uh, it's an incredible cast. It's an incredible film. Both of these films are so enlightening from a historical standpoint. Warrior Queen of the, uh, Warrior uh, Queen of Yancey goes back in time. Uh, the Last Color uh, focuses on the relationship between a widow and a little nine-year-old who lives on the street, and how that relationship fostered something in the little girl that took her all the way to the Supreme Court in India to champion laws. Uh, that would change laws uh, that were discriminatory against widows and not allowing them to celebrate uh, a, a very important date in the Indian calendar of known as holy, uh, as well as other issues that, that were tackled in the court uh, regarding transgenders, recognition, things like that. So two really outstanding films, and I can't wait uh, for these people to join us. And of course, today, we're actually going to debut, and this isn't going to be every week, but uh, because there are so many interviews uh, that I do that, and some go out in print, some go online, there's never enough time, though, on Mondays to have them all. I did six interviews that, oh, just this weekend. Uh, we don't have enough time in the show. But what we're going to now do, we're going to debut it today, Behind the Lens After Hours. 
And uh, every, probably once a month or every now and again, we're going to create it immediately as soon as Behind the Lens ends. Behind the Lens After Hours will start and it will be a full pre-recorded exclusive interview with somebody today. It's going to be our interview with Dan Kraus talking about the Kill Team. But, okay, what are we doing? I see, oh, okay, never mind. But <laughs> Pam was getting up. It looked like our phone was ringing, but uh, apparently it was not. Uh, but before we have our guests join us and before we travel across history and across the, the ocean into and learn something about another culture, let's take a listen to... Uh, I, as you all know, I, I did talk with Dion Taylor at length about his new film, Black and Blue. It opened this weekend at number six, uh, behind Joker, Maleficent, Adam's Family, uh, Zombieland, Double Tap, and Countdown. Uh, so proud of Dion. It's an incredible film. You've heard me talk about it, uh, more in depth last week, um, but take a listen now to excerpts of my interview with Dion talking about his journey and the making of Black and Blue. It began to happen with me on supremacy. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I pulled it along on traffic. And then it even is inside of the intruder. And this movie actually really highlights it. But to be able to take social awareness and energy and drop it into a thriller mm-hmm. is something that people have not seen and, it, and it's new and it's pulsating and what it does a lot of times is drives critics crazy because they're used to either an Artur movie mm-hmm. that is all about that thing right or they're like okay or it's just a popcorn fun summertime let me watch the movie and have a good time movie But what they have all failed to realize, with the exception of you and a few others, is that in today's society, right now, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way up to 30 years old, because of the invention of Instagram and social media Mm -hmm. and Facebook and all of the clips and short-form content that we're seeing, first of all, we're we're numb to violence, okay? Yep. And also, we're numb to people having real conversations about things that are affecting us as a people. So what has to happen is you have to slip the medicine inside of the entertainment. Yeah. And that and that is rare and weird. And I experienced it first, I was like, yo, why are people writing the stuff they're writing about traffic the way they're writing it? But then later, traffic received probably 13 awards. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Why? Because it's affecting people. Why? Because there was a whole school like Tennessee State University and Nashville and Sac State and UCLA that said, hey, can you come to our school because you've made one of the most polarizing movies that we have watched as a community. And I'm going like, what do you mean? They're like, because it was a thriller that all the kids loved, but when the end came on, they said, oh my God, I didn't even know this was real. Uh-huh. And what I'm saying is, that's what's unique about Black and Blue, right? It's just, it, it's me as a filmmaker really beginning to carve a niche into what I'm going to call um, um, You're carving a niche into the social zeitgeist is what you're doing. 
I'm trying really hard for that, Debbie, and 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 it's and it's and it's and it's my way of doing it, and and I believe that soon a lot of people will really get wind of what exactly it is I am doing behind the camera. Mm-hmm. It's not by it's not by mistake that we have an action intense thriller like Black and Blue, where all these cool things are happening that you love seeing in the movie, but there are spots and moments inside of the film where everything stops and it makes you think. She's amazing, both physically and emotionally in this film. And a lot of her emotion comes through Dion in large part due to, which immerses the audience, due to Dante and you and going for, you use a lot of extreme close-ups on Naomi. Because you really put us into her headspace. And yeah, I believe that, um, and I'm not just saying this to you, Debbie, and I'm hoping you can echo this because I have been saying it for eight hours today and I'm going to continue saying it all week as I do press. Normally, the Academy and all of these big award companies, they really find themselves getting behind uh, films that are like what I like to call tour films. Right. Um, performances that are our tour performances. Um, I truly feel like Dante's work in Black and Blue should be considered. And let me explain to you why. No cinematographer of his stature has ever gotten on their knees and dug into the dirt of the culture the way Dante did in this movie. Mm-hmm. Dante is in the ninth ward on the floor shooting art, shooting police corruption, the, 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 the stuff over the bridge and the stuff inside Kingston Manor and how polarizing Naomi is filmed in the apartments in which she's running and jumping. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying I'm, we're looking at the movie and I had a guy tell me that he said man I've never seen nothing like that and I said no I know that and and because it is unconventional and because it does have a bit of an action flow and because it is an urban you know uh, thriller uh, all those things always are normally like no we're not interested in that but man if you look at the work yeah. and what he's doing with Naomi I'm, I'm like, and, and Frank and Tyrese, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I mean, you are inside of a world and you, he, he has captured New Orleans like we have never seen before. Yeah, no, this is, and that's something that I really, that I want to talk to you about is that Kingston Manor and those apartment scenes, the mural, the quote unquote graffiti murals on the building. Now, are they there, or did you put them there for the film? No, those are actual artists. Wow. The biggest artists in New Orleans who have went around the country, and I mean went around the city post-Katrina and spray-painted their pain on these walls. Mm -hmm. Me and Dante drove those communities and found those pieces of art. Well, because I got to tell you, the walls and the third act where you have the night sequence and the camera, it shows one wall. 
and it's one face and then it shows another wall and another wall and you do like a three second hold on each one with the editing but each one of them what stands out and is so metaphoric in black and blue are the eyes and it's a double metaphor happening because it's like the you know someone is watching but it's also because of the vibrancy of the turquoise and the colors in these uh, paintings that it also is a sign of hope that somebody is watching, somebody is paying attention. So you're getting a double meaning there with the metaphor, particularly, particularly with this story. Uh, because the whole thing is, as the dialogue in the first act, it comes out, hey, we can call the cops and they don't even come over here. So we get to the third act and we see this. And it's like, okay, maybe the cops weren't coming, but somebody is watching. And then it all comes to fruition because of the character of West. She was watching. Yeah, it's, it, it, that's, what the, that's what the art is encompassing inside of the movie. Yeah. The first act of the movie, I pan up over the city and it says, open your eyes. Uh-huh. These are all messages for the Naomi character. Yeah. Right? And this is this comes right after the moment of her stopping the street fight. Mm-hmm. And, and not understanding how or what it is to be a police officer. If you watch the movie in a very fast way, she's learning how to be a cop on the fly. Right. She's learning the ins and the outs on the fly. You know what I mean? And although her partner is corrupt and dirty that's riding with her, um, Brown, I mean, he tells her, you think you black, you blue. This is the rules. Mm-hmm. She looks at him, he gets a phone call on his phone, and she says, you got that on your phone? She's learning. Yeah. Right? And those little moments, if you're just watching the movie, you're like, oh, man, what's going on? Then she learns when she calls 911, like, oh, my God, this is a fraternity. I'm not supposed to go against the fraternity. Right? But and the- I just think it's incredible in the artwork that we are highlighting. Yeah, you're right. When she gets to kiss the banner and she's, she's hitting this guy with this stick. You know, and we're cutting to all the images and the artwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole culture is watching. That's what I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the culture is saying, whoop his ass for all of us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and, and that's so special and was so fun to do. Even the artwork in Tyrese's apartment of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like it's there because I want people to be aware of these, these the forefathers and the grace that came before us that was fighting for injustices. Mm-hmm. And that was some excerpts of my exclusive with Dion Taylor talking black and blue and, of course, talking about Naomi Harris and her portrayal of Detective West and, of course, the incredible cinematographer Dante Spinotti, um, who this is now his third film uh, that he has done with Dion, they are a fabric, a fabulous collaborative team, and their work together. It Dante truly has helped uh, Dion's ability as a storyteller grow and improve and progress over the years. And I can't recommend the film highly enough. It is in theaters across the country now. Uh, black and blue, as see it, please. 
Um, and now, and you'll get, you can, you'll find more about Dion on my website, uh, behindthelensonline.net. But right now, we are going to shift gears and we are going to welcome a chef, a Michelin star chef turned filmmaker to Behind the Lens, Vikas Khanna. Welcome. Hi, Debbie. Vikas here. Hi, how are you? Fantastic. Very good. Very good. Thank well, you for having me. I am thrilled to have you. Um, your direct, you make your directorial debut with this incredible film, The Last Color. I didn't know what to expect yes. when I saw the film. It is charming. It is enchanting. It is eye-opening. It's powerful. It breaks your heart, and then it makes your heart smile, and you are so inspired. You take us on this journey, this emotional journey, uh, through the eyes of uh, this little girl, Choti. And uh, just, the uh, words, words truly fail me, the emotion that comes out in this film, Vikas. Um, this is based on, you adapted this from a book that you wrote, correct? I initially wrote a short story. Mm-hmm. When I witnessed this whole segregation of the culture, when I saw this divide between the entitled and the suppressed, mm. and I wrote a short story in 2011 on a flight from Delhi to New York. <laughs> and then, you know, we wanted to get published in New York Times Opinion or New Yorker. Nothing happened because, you know, people will accept anything I write about food, about Indian food specifically. Mm-hmm. But this was a new genre I was touching. But even that short story was about positivity. That what if the color was given back to these women? Mm-hmm. The color would be symbolic to freedom and rebirth, empowerment. Well, and that's what's so beautiful so, about this I, story. I, I, um, you know, a lot of people I, don't realize, and I didn't realize, um, that widows, uh, they go off into an ashram and... That's uh, they're wearing white. They're wearing a solid color. There is no such thing as color for them anymore. They become invisible because yeah. they were an appendage of their husband, and now the husband is gone. Um, so yeah. to watch this play out and be propelled forward because of the stubbornness and determination of a little girl um, who breaks down yeah. down a wall throughout her life is just fabulous. Um, yeah. Thank you. The little girl was a real girl I met in during my travels. She was a tightrope walker, and she was so strong and determined and powerful. I wanted to self-educate her and become a police officer. Uh, so and she, that really inspired me. I said, we, we complain about small things, and look at this girl. She's so resilient and so determined to become something in her life. Yeah, I'm, and she is, I mean, this young lady that you have playing Choti is amazing. She lights up the, amazing. She lights up the screen, <laughs> Vikas. Lights up the screen. You can't get enough of her. And then you put her together with the actress who plays Noor. 
um, the white clad yeah. widow who doesn't speak and just, you know, mumbles with her prayer beads all the time. But this little girl breaks her down and you watch this dynamic between an unwanted older woman and an unwanted child. And it just, yeah. it yeah. soars. I mean, both of them are unwanted. They're, they're undesirables from either end of the spectrum. And you really... Bring... This is what I felt when I was writing it. I mean, and you know, not, not a trained filmmaker, it becomes difficult for you to translate those emotions. Mm-hmm. But I'm so glad that you, you figured out every nuance of it. You figured out every detail of their character. I mean, you, you just watch these two together and your heart soars. Um, especially when Chody is so determined to bring color into Nora's life. And because Nora's favorite color yes. is a fuchsia pink, she gets a little bottle of nail polish and paints her, her toenails. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it is absolutely adorable to watch this. When did you know you had to turn this into a film? Um, because, you know, what we see what's going on in America right now, that America is the leader of the world's narrative. And somehow I feel that it's going backward in so many ways. We're forgetting that how many wars we fought for freedom and for rights and for equality. And people tend to forget history too fast. And that is when it, I felt that, you know, this history could also be forgotten that how much sacrifices and pain these women have endured. Mm-hmm. And you see a small light at the end of this tunnel, which was that they were allowed to play a festival, which we take it for granted. I said, we must tell this story so that people don't go back to history to repeat themselves. Yeah. That what we have come far, they've really come far. Even that small festival, there was a huge victory. You know, I'm, I'm curious, because how you went about approaching this from a filmmaking standpoint, um, back in the summer... John Favreau, when he was doing press for The Lion King, I was sitting there while he was talking about how making a film is much like cooking. It's like being a chef. You have to get all the right ingredients and you have to find the recipe and put it all together. And as I was watching the film, I, I remembered what John had said. And I thought, okay, now we have a real chef who is making this film. <laughs> so, ha- surprisingly, surprisingly in, uh, throughout the world, this has never happened before. So people were so shocked when I said that. People kept saying to other actors, you guys, you guys are tagging the wrong chef. He's a <laughs> chef, he's not a filmmaker. So initially I was embarrassed that, oh my God, is it real for me to make a movie? Then I said, you know what? Um, I love Andy Warhol, the mm-hmm. New York artist, who said that if you're an artist, you just need to create. Do not worry how people will judge you. That quote really helped me survive this inter- in, in the internal and the external conflict. <laughs> you know, how did you go about putting this recipe, this filmmaking recipe together uh, and your approach? Because um, you have beautiful cinematography, um, your camera movement, Oh, going through all the alleys and you know, and the riverfront on the Ganges. I mean, it just, we yes. get to see so much that 
guidebooks and tour books don't show us. We don't even see them in pictures on the internet. Everything is all prettified. But you're taking us on this journey, you know, your own little travelogue as well. But some of this is challenging for filming. So I'm curious how you went about putting this together. So it's a, it's a tough city to shoot in because it's a very religious city and you can disturb people's sentiments. So a lot of people who saw me shooting, they thought I was shooting a cooking show. <laughs> so that's where I get away. I got away with everything. You're just shooting a cooking show segment here and then there's a little widow and there's a child. Yeah. Okay, well, you did have people making warm bread. You could see that people were yes, actually cooking yes. some stuff. So, you know, you, okay, so it could have been. It could have been a cooking show. It could have been a cooking show. I think just, just holding it together, what you said is so true. You need to find the right recipe. That's a script. You need to find the right characters. Those are your kitchen staff. You need to find the right sourcing, produce, and meat and prayers, which is exactly the, the crew of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then your stage is your restaurant. But the problem in the cooking world is that it's easier than making a movie <laughs> because I can cook and control the entire dining experience of yours. But I cannot control once the movie is out of my hands. Mm-hmm. You know, if you come to a restaurant, I can always say, oh, you didn't like the food, Debbie, and let me taste this dish for you. Or let it custom make it for you. In the movie, you do not do that. You just make it once, and it stays forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, you have some beautiful, beautiful night scenes um, with a lot of candlelight and lights along the Ganges. Was that? Did you do that oh, practically, yes. or did you do that in post production with CGI? Because it's absolutely it's it's magical. It's magical looking. We had no budgets. We had no budgets to do CGIs and do post-productions and all those things. So even the dance sequence when she is dancing in the backdrop of the sun, we had to shoot it again and again at 5 o'clock in the morning because we couldn't get it right. It was so difficult because the, the pink light stays there for three minutes or four minutes and then it disappears. And then everything is white and yellow. But we figured out that we need to spend more time early morning and during the sunset to create that light, which is throughout the movie. It's little, it's so warm and it's so like calming, reflective light of the sun. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just absolutely so this beautiful. This is all done on real locations, real locations. Wow. Now, it is, it's just absolutely, the sunsets are just gorgeous. And you spend a lot of a lot. You spend a lot of time there on the water, which, of course, you know, is very metaphoric for baptism and rebirth. Um, So, absolutely. So you have all these little touchstones in there that truly speak to the culture on many levels. And absolutely, I think. I was inspired by this baptism in Goa, Mm -hmm. where I saw that a child was getting baptized, and the entire use of water, which is in almost every religion or every faith. So when this girl is having a new birth, she comes out of the water. So I want to make it symbolic, like baptism. 
Mm-hmm. Today she's been baptized by the river. In Charles River, not a few drops have baptized her. There's a new birth and she survived. Mm-hmm. So I thought, and thank you for thank you for picking it. All the little little details. <laughs> You know, um, you have some very difficult scenes in the film, too, Vikas. Um, difficult scenes in how the police treat Noor, an older lady, and also how they treat Choti and her friend, her young friend. Um, which, of course, the end of the film, and I'm not going to give it away, but boy, oh boy... You know, it that I mean that just it's beautiful during during the holy festival. It's it, your heart just oh your heart just soars. I right love away that scene. Right away, I knew, I knew you bookended that film really so perfectly. Oh, oh my God! You realized it that it's it's began. Oh, began say it's big. Oh, absolutely. 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 Oh. Oh my God. Many people don't get it. The, Many people don't get it. The way you had the camera and the look on the face that the camera captured right away. Some promises so people do thinking, honor for yeah, life. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking that you know when I have to write a character of the boy. So there's a love story which we see. And then there's an invisible love story. Mm-hmm. That love story is never rewarded. It's never noticed. But some people are so loyal to it. They spend their entire life just waiting for that moment. Yeah. And I think I, I got that last scene inspiration from Brokeback Mountain. And in the end, you see the shirt. Oh. That's the shirt. Yeah. And that is when I got the idea. Oh, my God, there's a love story. And he never confessed his love mm-hmm. to Jake Gyllenhaal. But his love story was more powerful, more powerful. It was less words. And that is where the stories, I figured out, oh, my God, this, this moves you. Because on every level, there's a love story which we don't celebrate. It's mm-hmm. so under the ground. Yeah. We don't, but we sacrifice our entire life for it. Yeah. So this boy must have sacrificed his entire life thinking that Shorty is going to come back one day. Mm-hmm. I need to keep my promise of becoming the police officer. I just, it's like, that just, that killed me. I saw that, that killed me. But, you know, because we only have another minute or so left, Vikas, I've got to ask you, as I was saying, there's some very difficult scenes in there, some violent scenes. Um, Was that challenging for you as a filmmaker when you're working with a young actress, a child actress, um, for some uh, and even and a young boy as well, um, to yes. to shoot those yes. and I, I, it used to disturb me. Yeah, because that that. But I really saw the abuse of power. I really saw abuse of power, and that is why I want to reflect in this that the gods people worship is also the the gods hiding inside these kids. I mean, it's. So it, I, I just like it would disturb me when I saw them mistreating their power, abuse of their power to this kid. The most vulnerable people were so victimized. No, I mean, it just, you really touch on everything. 
and you really you you bring it home. There is not a person who will see this film, who will see the last color that will not be moved by the experience of watching this and the emotions that you bring to light. Um, absolutely, and it's out in theaters now. It opened on Friday. So people can go see it. Um, yes. Now, do Thank you, you do you have any plans to make another film? Now that you've made this one, <laughs> you know it's very difficult balancing your kitchen <laughs> and restaurant and cookbooks and TV shows, and then also producing a movie. It's not easy at all. You know. But yes, I think cinema has that. See the way they move to you. A book cannot move you, a cinema does. Yeah. I want to tell the stories which are reflective of our times, and I want to tell the stories which, which are meaningful and oh. inspiring, and which break your heart, but so does the seed break before it becomes a plant. Well, for my money, stop making TV shows and make more movies. That's, that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> stop the TV shows, keep the restaurants, stop the TV shows, and make more movies, because... This one is exquisite, Vikas. Absolutely exquisite. Thank you. Thank you. And unfortunately, we're out of time. I could talk to you all morning, but I'm going to be talking to two more filmmakers, also telling a story about India. Um, So, yes, it's just a serendipitous day here on Behind the Lens. But, oh, Vikas, I hope you'll come back on the show again. I would love to have you back on and talk more about, you know, so much of your work that you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you you so much, Vikas. And everybody, The Last Color in theaters now. Thank you. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And it is truly an exquisite film. It's a beautiful film. And... I mean, it made me tear up countless times. I'm getting teary just talking to him and remembering some of the scenes. Okay, now are are we ready for our next for our next guest? All right, bring him on live for me. And let's see who. Okay, who do we? And let's see who do we have on right now, Pam? Do we have Devika and Swati? Yes, Swati Hise and Devika Hise both on. Hi guys, how are you? Hi, we're we're doing well. How are you? Well, I'm so excited. Hi, Swati. That's uh, Devika. I'm so excited to have both of you on. Um, as, as happens, as luck would have it, today is all about films that celebrate history in India. I just had Vikas Kana on talking about his film, The Last Color, and now the two of you, the mother-daughter dynamic duo talking about the warrior queen of Yancey. What a film, ladies. What a film. Very excited. Very, very thrilled. Oh, I did not know this story. Um, I love history. I love when history is brought to life on on the, the big screen. I just can't believe... Devika, I mean, you are a wonder woman with the riding, with the sword fighting. Absolutely. We're thrilled. We're thrilled to share it. Thank you. And we do hope everyone shares with us because she truly was amazing while making it. We both were so amazed that such a woman could exist and we wanted to share her with the world. 
I can't believe no one has told her story before now. Um, the story of Rani uh, Lakshmi Mai. I mean, just, it's an amazing story and so important in world history because yes, she, yes, she sparked the, the two-year battle for independence. Um, yes, and, and the, not just the battle, what amazing is she's young, you know, to, to have this kind of incredible focus. And even when she died at 29, so many years later, 200 years later, she leaves a legacy where people think of a brave young girl in India as the Rani of Jhansi. Yeah, I mean, absolutely uh, astounding story of her. But what is equally astounding is the fact that Swati, as Devika's mother, you are director of this film. You you co-wrote. You are you directed your daughter, and I'm gonna and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tell everybody. You know, did she listen to you or did she battle with mom? Um, but. Um, but that in and of itself is something very unique. We haven't seen that happen in film. The other, th- another aspect of this film, it's not a Bollywood film. It is a true historical drama. And, right, right. And then the authenticity... Well, well I think, you know, I, I mean, when I think of, you know, directing it, it's, it's, it's a film that, you know, I started... Uh, because, uh, history was my subject both in school and college, and it was Indian and British history. So I'd done a lot of research and written it out, and then to bring the right people to the project. So when Devika was brought onto the project, because I knew she was the only one I could have play this role, and, um, you know, frankly, if she hadn't played it, I don't think I could have found someone who could speak three languages and do the martial arts and everything that I needed um, and the kind of time that was put into the project. So you can only um, exploit your own daughters to do that. <laughs> so I knew um, I had to use the talent. Yes, but now, Devika, yeah, you know, did she pay you at least or did she say, no, you're my daughter, you're working for free? No, I had to be paid, I, but that was an argument as well, because I have managers and agents, and um, they had a totally different idea, I think, of what uh, the money amount should actually be. So all interesting things, you start working with your uh, family, but we manage, and we're on the other side of it, which is great. We're still speaking, and we have a good relationship. So I I think that that's good enough at this stage. Yeah, but yeah, it's also a good thing because being a parent, uh, I had also trained her in a couple of um, aspects of classical dance over the years. So we had a relationship where she did on stage was initially guided by me. So mm-hmm. there was a kind of bond or a trust that, you know, each one looks out for the other. I, you know, I have had her on my stage when she was younger at several concerts at Lincoln Center. So there was that working relationship ever since she was a young girl where there was a bond of trust, you know, curtain goes up and we perform. And here it was just a different arena, and here she was also now an adult, and she was the lead actress, but it was not because she's my daughter, because I told her very clearly, I know how good you'd be, and you need to trust me. And after she's seen the film, you know, she says, you were right. I said, yeah, I would not have jeopardized 
something I'm doing creatively unless I believed in the product, in the end result. So there was a lot of dialogue, and I always, I think, on the set remained her director because it was the project, and I was very hell-bent on the project being, uh, you know, successful. And I would often tell her, I don't want to see Devika, I want to see Rani Lakshmi bite. So we both became on the same page because it was about this, this actor who had to transform herself into this Indian 1854 character and be true to that period in time and the style of speaking and acting. Mm -hmm. And that made both of us kind of transform because it took two years to do it. Wow. It was not like, it was not an eight-week shot that we did because I gave up one year because I couldn't get some of the other right actors. And I kept telling her, you keep training because when we go on to the set, We've been training for a year and a half, and then we go into eight weeks of shooting. But the pre-production was very detailed. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, you mentioned your cast. Your cast is impeccable, Swati. And, of course, Devika, you're also an, an executive producer on the film. The cast is amazing. Yeah, she is the uh, executive producer because I had to, after a while, uh, drag out every single stop and say, Devika, come on, help me with all the posts. Devika, help me with this. Like, hey, you're not just actor here. Get your butt here. we got to work this together, mother-daughter. Isn't, isn't it nice to be wanted, Devika? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wanted is great. Needed is a pretty... And thing, though, because I think there was a lot of weight on my shoulders and hers as well, that if yeah. either of us messed up or if either of us dropped the ball, the whole project would entirely uh, crumble. And so it's a pretty stressful thing to deal with for years of your life. Um, but otherwise, you know, it, it was all good. It was all yeah. great. No, no, I, I had funny going to a room at night and saying, Devika, <laughs> tomorrow's scene the horses. I will kill you if you fall on that horse. It'll cost me $80,000 if we <laughs> miss a shoot. <laughs> I said, no pressure, and I'd leave the room. <laughs> well, you know, and that that's, you know, you've got your an, an, an amazing cast here. I'm always anxious to see anything that Rupert Everett does, because now that he's matured, he really takes on some great historical roles and brings wonderful depth to them. He does that as Major Rose. Nathaniel Parker as Robert Hamilton, um, you just hate him. You hate him. He is like the devil incarnate, and he does it so well. Um, and Ben Lamb, I love the chemistry between the two of you, Devika. Uh, you and Ben Lamb, just amazing chemistry on screen. Um just I that yeah, that I, blew me I away. All in India, and we all got to ha hang out, um, and I think that really helped. You know, both with Ben and with all of the girls as well. The the girls who played my shadows mm -hmm. were all spending time on that as well because we were living in. Or, or Jaipur, or was that Morocco, where there's absolutely nothing but miles and miles of, of desert. Um, so it was really lovely, and even with 
I didn't have any scenes with him, um, we all got to spend time as actors, and I think that really helped with our on-screen chemistry mm-hmm. for all of us. Yeah, and and I think for me, I always loved the acting of Rupert Everett and Nathaniel yeah. Parker. And for me, I, I almost zeroed into them without caring whether they had a large social following or are they is obviously not very sensible, but I wanted to do it the way I projected the characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did a marvelous job, and yeah. I really admire them as brilliant actors. So yeah. very lucky to get each and every one, including Derek Jacoby, who I adore. Oh, my God, and yes. May. And, and they were just amazing. I mean, frankly, they made my job easy, um, you know, both Jody and Derek, because... You don't need to direct such brilliant actors. They yeah. take your script and they make it beautiful. Well, that left you to direct the horses, of which you've got many, many horses, and they require a lot of direction. Um, you've got all these heavily chore- choreographed fight scenes, training scenes. What? How did you go about preparing for all of that, working with your cinematographer and... Your fight choreographers, Swati, because that's not easy logistically for any director, be it Steven Spielberg or or be it a first-time director, Um, an undertaking like that. I agree with you. I'm going to be very honest. Um, Because I was the first-time director with so many other mediums that I've worked with, which I've had to work with, editing music for my uh, art projects and dance and mm-hmm. uh, had to cut uh, videos. Realized all of that was able to direct, but everything that I did on this project, I wrote it out and everything I micromanaged, including the costumes from scratch, because not because I wanted to do it. Every time I approached someone, they took it sometimes into a different direction. Like in India, the costumes were turning out to be a little Bollywoodish, and I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the old world classics that I knew from my roots, so I finally had to do them myself. And we we did do it. And then we had a good team of heads of department had um, asked who should work, but they had all been working on very um, classic pieces where they had won national awards. Mm-hmm. So I did not want to move ahead unless the right team. And again, when we said, because I had less budgets than most studio films uh, like Spielberg, I knew I couldn't make mistakes. So I took every scene and I storyboarded it and sat for almost six with action people saying, if this happens here, this happens here, let's see how do we cut down our budget here and yet get the same result. And then with my DOP, I sat and said, right from the get-go, I want every bit of camera work worked so that we can, um, we can be on the same page. So it was a lot of planning, more than I think I did more planning than the actual <laughs> shooting. And we finished on time under budget because uh, there were no days that we missed any shots because we just, from the get-go, we'd go start and we'd end the end of the day what we had planned. Wow. And I think that helped a little because of my classical training mm-hmm. that I just knew that you have to deliver a certain X amount of shots. And we didn't change our mind because we had done so much recce. Well, and it, it pays off. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you storyboarded 
Because on, on the scenes that you have, you have some beautiful, intimate, quiet scenes. But for these big spectacles, the battle scenes, the training scenes, uh, you've got all these horses. You really need to know exactly where that camera is going to go, exactly where those swords are going to go. Um, and it, it just it's flawless on screen. It is truly, fl- right, right. It, it's flawless on screen. Thank you. Because I actually, when doing it, just did it with passion and obsession. And with everyone saying, you're the director, why are you involved in every detail? And now I'm grateful because sometimes someone would come on set. Or I remember once one of the girls did not come because they gave her a wrong call and said she wasn't needed. And I uh, quickly changed the story because if I'm writing the story, I know how to change it because... She couldn't have made it, and I would have lost three hours. Mm-hmm. And so we just had her doing something else in another scene so that there was continuity. So things like that, you know, um, you, you kind of have to think on your feet, which you can do if you've been party to doing most of the, the detailing mm-hmm. on the project. You know, how was the writing, uh, the writing process for the two of you uh, with the script? Were were you working on it uh, to, in tandem together? Would one of you write part of it, and then the other would take a look and maybe add something else? I'm curious how you worked on the script, and and then you also had a third a third person in there with you on the script too. Yes. So when I started, I researched it, and I was the only researcher on the project because I'm the only one who's the the history major. Uh, Olivia Empton, uh, who is a lovely uh, British young woman, she was she was 24 then. I did not have the ability to type that at that point, so I would dictate out every scene and trash it out. Uh, so you know, so she worked with me for um, five weeks. After which, I had written out my script, um, you know, and uh, wanted Devika to be part of writing the script as in how would an American audience look at it. Mm-hmm. So she would look at the dialogues and say, look, this tense scene, let's change this. This is, this is how it would be. Or this is how we should change the scenes. So the, the crux and the full outline of the story with research obviously had to be me. And then Devika had to be the, the voice of the, the West of how it would perceive certain scenes. Or, and I would maintain the authenticity of the Indian part of the story and the British part of the story. And she, being young as well, would be contemporary as to how this would be understood mm-hmm. by today's audience. Well, so, uh, also, I, you know, I, I try to add comedy where I, I could, I try, you know, there's the, the Byron scene where she's reading poetry, mm-hmm. you know, researching what uh, poems would exist or be popular in that time period, um, basically taking the historical facts that were there and then trying to extrapolate or add on something interesting that could have happened in that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really interesting uh, project to be able to work on in that sense. Well, I have to tell Creative, you, the, the flow of the dialogue, the flow of the dialogue itself is excellent. It never, you know, so... Oh, thank, I, you. As thank I'm, you. As I'm sure you... Both... sometimes, you know, there's a rocking horse scene and I had the father, like, you know, sitting yeah. behind because <laughs> do in India. And then Devika said, no, 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 in the West, this scene is very nice. Can we change that? And I said, okay. 
uh, you know, if you think it seemed so. a little dark that people <laughs> could think it, you know, was something else, something a little more. But that's our generation, and my generation has kind of seemed cute because that's what dad, daddies did. That's you know? just it. I thought, uh, I think it's cute. <laughs> right, because we cut him actually sitting and rocking on the horse with her. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. You know, I had Devika at, at being young and Olivia, uh, British, and then my uh, import, you know. So it was great to take the younger generation as well as America, Britain, and India being covered. You know, something that I'm sure not too many people ever talk about or mention I have to commend you on your subtitles. So often when subtitles are applied in a film, they are disjointed. And whoever is is translating is trying to make them possibly word for word instead of so it flows. Your subtitles are fabulously done. (laughs) Thank you, because they were done by the team you're talking to. Uh, they were specifically done by Devika and me only. They, uh, the subtitles are incredible. In all, in truth and honesty, I have to, t- because that's something, it always annoys me. And people never talk about that. But I am so appreciative of you. We actually worked very hard on very hard because it was very difficult. A, I think we both have issues with um, watching Indian movies and Horrible. seeing seeing the subtitles and knowing what they're actually saying and saying, that's not what it, that's not what they're saying, that's not what it means. So we all had that going into it. And then we had the main issue of the fact that in both Indian dialects that we use, um, often the language, you know, has a, it's a lot more words per second, right, mm-hmm. than in English. And so we making sure that people could read them in time as well and then have just enough words on screen so that people can get through the entire and we subtitle. had some slow readers sitting in so that we said, check if you could read it. Yeah. We spent so much time on those subtitles. Well, I... It was funny. I appreciate the work you put in on them. Very happy. That actually does mean a lot to us. Yeah, it was yeah. a painstaking process. <laughs> I wish more people would would put forth the effort with the subtitles, especially on a film like this, that there is it's history that we're talking about, and it's and bringing emotion to the forefront, drama to the forefront, but still staying true to the history, and you know you need that translation to resonate for other audiences who are learning about this for the first time. You did an amazing, amazing job with those subtitles. I'm very excited because you have no idea, you know, um, there were so many naysayers on the project from the get-go and that, uh, you know, we we both uh, just went for it and we've come out of it. but it, it really took a lot, and I'm happy to actually share with you the last day of the shoot. I was airlifted out of Morocco, and Devika took over directing the last two days for me because I was on life support for a very long time at NYU. So that's how hard oh the project God. was. Oh, my God. And we made it. That's why we celebrated even more. I said, hey, I'm not drop dead. I need to edit the film. Oh, Nothing is going to stop you, Swati, is it? 
in fact, I told her, music is written on drugs, and I was at NYU, ICU, and I was on um, all kinds of meds, and I said, what's fun? Let's edit the film on these drugs. <laughs> Did you did did she really do? Did I think she it was, did she do it? Sorry, did she do it? Did she edit the film while on drugs? <laughs> yes, definitely parts of it. Oh um, god! But I think it was like a very high drama moment, and it was that when she was being flown up, flown out by airlift, where she said, "We must complete the film. You must finish the film for me." Um, so, you know, that's also how we were able to slip into all of these different roles that we had to do because we couldn't really count on anyone else to do any of it because even from the very get-go, having a historical drama action scene period mm-hmm. piece, which is led by a brown woman, I mean, that's just unheard of and yeah. no one is really willing to risk such a big project not being led by a white man, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we faced that a lot. They said, you know, who's going to distribute your film? <laughs> who's your audience? They really said only Indians will care about this Indian story, so why are you even trying to make it for a global audience? And I think being told that again and again is why it just needed to happen. But the thing, this story affects the globe it affected global history um yes and it's about every woman it's not an indian woman i saw in her the spirit of every woman who is a mother daughter a sister friend but she's a warrior every day of her life when she gets out there Mm -hmm. so i've got to ask you about the music the music is 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 another element of the film um, you know, how much, did you, did you help compose that too, Swati? Yes. I knew it. I have to say yes. And, um, we had a wonderful composer, Thomas Cantalivin. But, um, as I said, with the classical dance, the actual musicians who were used uh, in India were my team who I knew since I was 16. And, uh, we pretty much, you know, suggested the ragas, told Thomas what we think, and um, he he was with uh, us in New York because I wasn't allowed to travel due to my locks. Had a lot of the work done in New York, and then when the British Chamber Orchestra was used, uh, Devika and I flew down, and we kind of um, made sure that it was the way we wanted. So we had a fabulous team, and Thomas was amazing. But the Indian ragas and the melodies and the musicians we pretty much curated and brought on the team. The girl who sings, Anjali Gaikwar, she is uh, from a small village in India, and we took her because she won the Little Champs composi- uh, oh. competition in those big festivals, and she and her father, in fact, said, come on a bus, and will we be paid, you know, um, $100 for that day? And this is the kind of people we reached out to wow. for our outreach because... We didn't care she wasn't a big name, but we wanted her. She was 14, and that's her voice that we have. And the oh. end of the movie, uh, the voice is actually Devika Bize singing. Oh, my. God. She really did put you to work doing everything, didn't she? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. A taskmaster <laughs> for a mother. Boy, oh, boy. Yes, yes. I mean, just... So it was exciting, you know, to just see that I knew... 
at so many levels. And then, you know, she felt for the Rani. And I said, that's how you will be able to give that performance, you know. Well, unfortunately, ladies, we're almost out of time. But I've got to ask you, Swati, please tell me you're going to make another film. Please tell me you're going to direct another film. This one is... Absolutely. It's it's called The Servants of the Gods. (laughs) Seriously, you already have a film you're working on? Yeah, yeah. I don't have funding, but I definitely (laughs) have my script. I have my cast in mind. I might as well storyboard it while I'm at it. You might will happen. You might as well. And and <laughs> might and might you have your lead actress cast already? No, actually we'll we'll you know run it by because it's set in Manhattan and it's set in India again. Mm-hmm. And um you know we'll we'll see who all would be interested in it. It's um it's um it's again got some history but otherwise it's fictional. So Devika, would you be auditioning for a role in your mother's next film? Or would you take a pass? We'll see. Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> or I might just tell her, go out and raise the money and become the producer while I direct. <laughs> okay, I, I think she's already figured out what she wants you to do, Devika. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get, I'm, getting, I'm getting that impression. Well, Warrior Queen of, of Yancey opens November 15th. Um, is it going in a wide release or is, is it going to be a platform or a smaller release? Do you know? Um, it's, we are starting at 300 theaters across America. So fabulous. Medium. <laughs> That's yeah. It's opening the same day, uh, in Canada as well. Oh, good. MK2 Myland. MK2 Myland is our distributor and we open on all of North America on November 15th. Oh. And then the week after in India. On the 29th, we open in India. And the Rani's birthday is November 19th. So oh. we are really looking to celebrate this woman's life. Oh, my God. Well, I can't thank the two of you enough for coming on Behind the Lens today. It is a joy talking to both of you. Um, if and th- it's a joy to be appreciated by someone who has recognized the subtitles and so much. It's such a pleasure. Oh, it is a privilege to see a film that's this well made and that conveys this much. And it is an important piece of history. And it's, it's a real testament to the strength of mothers and daughters. They can work together and not oh, yeah. kill each other. You know? No, that I do. I do agree. You can always count on your daughter, and and you know that they'll watch your back. Okay, I'm waiting for the daughter to say something here that I think she. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just smiling. I'm being. I'm being given a compliment. How great is that? <laughs> um, no, it was a very lucky thing that we were able to even do this, and from the moment we started it. I did not believe that we would get to this point at any point. And I still think I'm there where I'm in the state of shock that it's actually coming out in uh, theaters. So I think it was really only her who had that vision that we could do this. And now here we are. Um, And I got dragged along for the ride. (laughs) Yeah. Well, next ride, you're going to run, you're going to run behind her willingly. You're going to be chasing her, I think, after this one. Uh, ladies, again, an incredible, incredible job. Thank you so much. And I hope I, I hope you'll both come back on the show again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so lovely.
Oh. Thank you ever so much. Thank you both. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was the mother-daughter filmmaking team. And they are a dynamic duo, let me tell you. Uh, Devika BC and Swati BC and Warrior Queen of Yancey. It is not just an Indian history story. It truly is a global history story and is very important uh, in this Me Too age, of which we're still in and everybody talking about we need to see stronger women in films, we need to see more women directors. Mother-daughter combo is something that we don't see. I think the only other mother-daughter combo I have seen recently has been Leah Thompson uh, and directing her daughter, Zoe and Maddie Deutsch. So, incredible. November 15th. Well, that is all the time we have for regular Behind the Lens today. Stay tuned for Behind the Lens After Hours, which is coming right up after we sign off. So... I'm Debbie Elias, and this is Behind the Lens. And welcome back to Behind the Lens After Hours. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens and Behind the Lens After Hours. And in this particular aspect of the behind the lens branding, um, after hours is something new we're going to try. Um, maybe once a month, maybe more often, who knows, but it's going because I have so many interviews with so many incredible filmmakers, um, that there just isn't enough time to get them all in on just the one hour weekly show. Um, and then, of course, they're scattered around in print and online on, in various outlets around the globe. Um, so I, but some are so good that I really want you to be able to hear the interview from beginning to end and have it be a compliment to the regular show when you're already tuning in. And it will make the publicists of the films really, really happy that when we do this. Um, so let's call let Come on. Let's just say it. Um, so. I'm very excited that for the interview that we're about to play for you in its entirety. Uh, it is with writer-director Dan Krause. Dan, former photojournalist, um, he a documentarian, and he actually made a 2013 documentary called The Kill Team, uh, the story of a soldier who was in Kandahar, Valley in Afghanistan in 2009 and there were untoward things that were going on with other soldiers in his unit and he couldn't tolerate it um, he tried speaking to his father in the states who was former military uh, and things take a turn for the worst where soldiers are being court-martialed for premeditated murder because of things that were done. And this soldier, Andrew Brigman, uh, is one who basically was a whistleblower. It was the, the 2013 doc, The Kill Team, was the winner of the Truer Than Fiction Independent Spirit Award. Uh, that was the first time I met Dan. And when 
we talked about, and it was around that time we talked about the documentary. Uh, he is also a noted uh, cinematographer. Uh, he worked for he worked with director Jacob Kornbluth and Robert Reich on uh, their documentary America Inequality for All. And our regular listeners, longtime listeners, will know that Jacob has done been on Behind the Lens several times, and this is one of the films that he has talked about. He was also the cinematographer on O.J. Made in America. Um, and now he's taking, he's moving into the narrative feature world. Dan's moving into the narrative feature world. And he delivers, he's adapted what is from his documentary. And this is essentially a psychological thriller is how this plays. It's a very interesting construct. Uh, he tackles the issues of coming of age, of the idea of, a lot of uh, people in the military, they're sheep. All they do is follow orders and they don't think. Um, it, it, there's a great examination in the film of fear. Fear is a driving force. Uh, some mask, they mask their fear with violence. Others mask it by cowering in a corner. He really tackles all these human emotions, reactions, and traits. With an intense care, it's an intense character study as well, and it's fascinating. Standout performances: Nat Wolf as Andrew Brigman, Alexander Skarsgård as Sergeant Deeks, uh, Brigman's commanding officer. Um, uh, Skarsgård. It is a tour de force performance uh, of how he portrays the of how he portrays Deeks. Uh, comes across as a father figure, but yet, you know that voice when you know you screwed up and your parents like to just whisper and say quietly and then you're waiting for the other shoe to drop? You see a lot of that in what Skarsgård brings to his character. Rob Morrow, someone we don't see enough of anymore. Uh, Rob Morrow plays Andrew Brigman's father, Mr. Brigman. Uh, and we get to see some great metaphor throughout the film of father-son dynamics, father-son relationships. Dan and I went very in-depth talking about the Kill Team. So I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to let you just listen to our entire interview of Dan Krause talking the Kill Team. I am so happy to be talking to you. It has been a long time since we chatted. Oh, did we talk documentary? We talked about the documentary. Yeah, when you won the uh, Independent Spirit Award. Oh wow! Okay, it has been a minute. It has been it has been a long minute, and that's one of the things that appealed to me about wanting to see the narrative. And your adaptation of the documentary, which is so intense and so outstanding and fact-filled, I wanted—I was curious to see how you would adapt that into a narrative. But most importantly, for you, as a photojournalist, as a documentarian, how you were able to shift from objectivity to emotional subjectivity in crafting this narrative? Well, that was, that was really the excitement of the, of the feature. Um, the opportunity 
to shift from an objective account that was retrospective to a subjective account that was present tense and first person. That, that's precisely what energized me and, and propelled me toward the feature. Um, and there was an opportunity to do what, to do in the feature what I could not do by definition in the documentary, which is to place the audience in the shoes of this young soldier, the boots of this young soldier, and, and force them to understand the decisions he faced um, and the impossible choices he made. Mm -hmm. Well, you do an exemplary job of it. I'm curious, you know, what kind of, you know, as you were writing the script, what kind of challenge was there for you? Were you was there a lot of going back and forth and trying to alter your own your own uh, filmmaking style in the script stage? Uh, in the script stage, um, yes, that that was a new experience for me. Writing a script um, uh, was not something I had not written a script before, so. There was a huge amount of learning just in, in terms of the craft and the form, but also detaching myself from the documentary because the one thing that was clear uh, is, is was that the feature could not simply be a kind of a transcription of the documentary mm -hmm. into feature form. It couldn't mimic the structure of the documentary exactly. And in fact, that wouldn't be its most powerful um, uh, point of view, its most powerful window into the story. And, you know, in, in writing, you know, multiple drafts and very different drafts of, of the script, uh, it became more and more clear that this was a contained thriller, that the mm -hmm. action, the tension of the movie takes place uh, on this oasis of the, of the military base, the forward operating base um, in the middle of this desert. Um, and that this was, this was really a movie about uh, not so much about warfare and, and guns and bombs and combat, uh, but really about the, the sideways glances from, uh, from your fellow soldiers, um, the unspoken threat um, that you can sense in what would ordinarily be a, um, an ordinary piece of conversation. All of that unspoken menace was what formed the, the tension of the movie, and the military base was what contained it. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, I'm glad you mentioned Thriller, because at the top of my notes as I was watching the film, I wrote psychological thriller, because that's exactly what this is. Okay. And, and, you know, it really comes through, thanks to Nat's incredible performance, but even more than his performance and his facial expressiveness and the way he uses his eyes, but the way you capture that in with ECUs and just general close-ups, um, the camera work really, we really feel like we are inside his head and we feel like you're walking down a dark alley somewhere and you don't know who's going to jump out and attack you. Oh, that's so great to hear. Um... Well, yes, you're you're um, you're saying all the right things, uh, and and that was that was our ambition from the start. And uh, you know, credit is due to our cinematographer Stefan oh. Payne, um, who's you know a marvelous uh, cinematographer. He's wonderful. 
He's wonderful, and, and I think one of his many talents is that he um, he thinks in terms of story the way he shoots, mm -hmm. and he also is very attuned to the idea of intimacy. Um, and both of us discussed at, at the um, at the outset of this project, we were determined to make this movie feel intimate and subjective and do the opposite of what a lot of war movies do, which is to feel big and uh, full of scope and, mm. um, and uh, you know, enc encompass kind of a, a sense of uh, grandiosity. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to make this feel very, very personal, uh, again, very intimate. Uh, we, I remember early in our process, we... Um, we were passing back and forth uh, a lot of photographs as reference to further, you know, to sort of initiate our discuss our creative discussion. And um, one of the there was a set of photographs uh, by uh, a photographer named uh, uh, Tim Hetherington. Mm -hmm. I I knew Tim, so yeah, I, oh, interv you knew Tim. Oh. I interviewed well, him you multiple know, I'm times. Sure you'll, you'll guess the photographs I'm, I'm speaking about, but it was the the, the series of sleeping soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just love the the sensitivity of those photos and the way that the these soldiers who are you know physically impressive and intimidating guys uh, felt very kind of vulnerable in those moments um, and that they were quiet photos and we love the idea of finding the quiet moments in this movie um, and you know as you say Matt is uh, one of the things he does best is um, he, he speaks through his eyes. Yeah. And he's a character who's very contained. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue. Um, but you're reading an enormous amount of what he is feeling uh, just by the way his eyes are, are moving and reacting mm -hmm. to what he's, um, what he's experiencing. And um, I think that was what made him uh, so well-suited for the part. Oh, I, I agree completely. And... You know, as I'm, I was watching this, I know it may be, because of the bombastic nature of the film, it might be, to some, a bad comparison. But I, was, I kept thinking of how Mel Gibson approached Hacksaw Ridge and Andrew Garfield's character of Desmond Doss. Yeah. Um, because he focused on Desmond's POV, and at the, the biggest moments, most emotional moments, he stripped away the sound, and it was quiet. And just let that camera hold on his face. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I think we we are simpatico with that um, with that idea of strict subjectivity. Um, that was our touchstone uh, in the making of the movie. I mean, Nat is in. Um, with rare exception, he's in every scene, every frame yeah. of that movie. So we're very firmly rooted in his point of view. And the questions that his character has in his mind are the same questions that the audience is holding in their minds. And the decisions that he is faced with making are the same decisions that we were, that, you know, hopefully we are forcing the audience to contemplate as they watch the movie. What would I do? Mm -hmm. uh, I hope that the audience will be debating and discussing that question, you know, long after the lights come up. It's very much a what would I do situation. And then, but what really set, brings that to the forefront, then you bring in Alexander Skarsgård as Sergeant Deeks. And I got to tell you, 
bringing Alex, casting Alex was sheer brilliance. Now, I know Stefan loves lensing him because he shot him before. Um, so he looks really good, but I love how he interprets Deeks as this mild-mannered father figure. And these young boys are looking up to him, but he doesn't raise his voice except in one or two instances. So it's always that paternal, okay, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We have to impress Dad so it doesn't. Yeah, I think one of the things that Alex brought to the role and saw in the script is that, you know, Deeks is, he, he doesn't draw people into his, his fold, into his worldview by a threat of intimidation, by, by bullying them with physical violence. He does it by luring them, by seducing them, um, by testing their loyalties. And he does it in such a way that you almost don't recognize what's happening until it's too late. Yeah. Um, and what Alex brought to the role with it was this almost sense of, uh, it was sensuality. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a real caring and love for the guys in his charge. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what Alex really relished about this role, the idea that... <clears throat> This was not a bad guy. This was a guy who had a very strong worldview. Uh, it may not be a worldview that we can agree with or, or be on board with, but it's a worldview that he is willing to um, defend with his life and that he's committed to enforcing. And, you know, uh, he believes more than anything that he is keeping his guys safe. He believes he's creating a world that will be safe for his young son. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, neither Alex nor I uh, in writing the script were um, willing to judge this character because we needed him to be complex and, and to contradict himself in ways that were um, very surprisingly human. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we find out he's a doting father, that gives you pause. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's not simply, I mean, even though he wears a mustache in the movie, he's not a mustache-twizzling villain. No, he, he definitely is not. We're not going to find him as the gunslinger uh, in a Western, uh, as Sergeant Deeks. Right, and, exactly. And yeah, that's so. one, another great parallel that you have, is Deeks and his son Andrew, uh, and his son, and then Nat Wolf's Brigman and his father, beautifully played by Rob Morrow, by the way, just a couple key moments but beautifully yeah, be played. And I yeah. love that juxtaposition of the father-son dynamic. I do too. And, you know, there's there's one other um, father-son moment in the movie that uh, I find, you know, incredibly profound, uh, which is the moment that the, the, the first boy is, the, the first victim, uh, when, he's, when he's discovered by his father in the village. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these moments of resonance that have to do with fathers and, yeah. and sons. Um, and, you know, I think what's fascinating and, and, of course, chilling about Alex's character is that he can be, uh, you know, a protective um, and, and doting father to his own son in one scene, and in the next scene be, um, you know, in the next scene he can casually disregard the death of another young person mm -hmm. uh, outside outside the wire um, and the fact that he is able to um, authentically hold those um, points of view in, in the same character I think is a real testament to his 
you know, to his talent as an actor, that's not an easy thing to pull off. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, it, it, the whole theme that you were watching here, we've got all these young men. They're essentially coming of age in the world, not just coming of age at home after high school, after college. They're coming of age in the world. And they're also falling into that, what the military does, what corporations do. You, you're becoming a sheeple. And you follow. It's follow the leader and follow what you're told to do, be it out of want or out of fear. And we see that play out with each of the, the boys in the unit. And I thought that, and I find that very striking. Yeah, and I think it's something that, you know, I hope transcends the U.S. military, transcends the war in Afghanistan. This is really about, you know, for me, it's about being a young person in um, a, a very um, uh, frightening and, and, and strange environment um, that is trying to find one's footing. And uh, I think the feeling of finding your individuality at odds with the values of the group, and mm -hmm. that's something that you can relate to, you know, whether in, you're in high school or whether you're in an infantry unit in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's something about the way that we align our moral priorities when we're young and we are surrounded by peers that I think is, um, I hope, is eminently relatable in the movie. Mm -hmm. I think it is, and we particularly see it again with the with Nat's character, Brigman, because before he goes away, he's gung-ho, he's doing his push-ups, he's ready, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna go out there, kick some ass, and then when he gets there, then he starts questioning his preconceived notions and had yeah. to rethink his approach to life, essentially. He, yeah, that's right. I mean, he's at a... He's at a defining moment in his life. He's literally transitioning from being a boy in his parents' house to being a man uh, holding a, a weapon in a, in a foreign country uh, that is completely unfamiliar to him. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think one of the things that made Nat such a um, you know an ideal choice for this this role is that he believably uh, is mature enough to be that man uh, holding. Uh, an M4 rifle in Afghanistan, but also um, <clears throat> believable as uh, as someone who is is clinging on to the vestiges of of youth mm -hmm. and bringing with them um, a, a, a certain naivety that only comes from uh, you know living living 18 years in a in a relatively sheltered environment. Mm -hmm. And it was important that he embodied both of those in each measure. Mm -hmm. No, I think I I just love the way that that's portrayed. I've got to ask you, Dan, about working with your editor, Franklin Peterson, and the challenges of finding the emotional beats and pacing with this film. Because your sound editing, because you're stripping away and getting us down to the bare bones of quiet and setting up that tense mode, uh, you know, these two really go hand in hand here. Your video, ed your visual editing, and your sound editing. So I'm curious about how you, how long it took you to find this pace, this beat. Um, it took quite a while. <laughs> uh, 
And, and you're right uh, that those two things do work hand in hand. And you know, it can be a challenge in the editing room before the sound design has even been, uh, before the inception of that process is even an idea in our heads. Um, we have to uh, we have to work with the picture, um, and um, you know I think Franklin did uh, a, a really beautiful job of composing scenes visually mm-hmm. that lent themselves to um, a sound design that could elevate and ratchet the tension, um, and you know we were very attuned in the edit room to the moments between the moments and you know the silence between characters and letting those speak as loudly as the the words on the page um and so franklin was uh you know he would comb through every frame of footage looking for just the right glance just the right expression in the eyes um to add emotional punctuation to a scene and then in the sound design uh you know it's remarkable what what you can do to create emotion with sound. Mm -hmm. And particularly in a thriller, if you're trying to create tension, one of the most powerful tools in your toolbox is silence. And, you know, there are particular scenes where you may not be conscious of it it as you're watching, but um, sounds will start to slowly fade away one by one Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, 28 tracks of sound. You're suddenly down to just three or four, and you may only hear footsteps and a, and and the faint, you know, empty empty sound of wind, and the absence of sound creates such uh, um, tension in the scene, and also a sense of greater subjectivity, and 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 that, you know, the sum total of that is that you're uh, that you feel emotionally. Your character, this character that you are on the journey with, uh, increasingly in jeopardy, and you fear for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we worked really hard for the picture and the sound to create that sense of subjectivity and that sense of increasing isolation and tension, so that we could feel, I, I hope, what the real um, soldier that this uh, character is based off of experienced in. in in the real life story. Oh, I, I think the editing on both fronts is exemplary. And with the sound, I love that there's there are a couple moments, one in particular, where all the sound is getting stripped away. We don't even hear wind. We hear footsteps. But it's the very specific slow footstep of a boot on dirt. And you can hear the dirt as it goes up when you step on it. And That's why I hope everyone will go see this in the theater because uh, your laptop speakers will not convey the depth of experience. Yeah. And the sound design really for a movie like this is, is everything. Uh, scenes come to life in a way that you can't imagine um, if, if you don't have uh, the immersive experience of sitting in that field of sound. And so, uh, you know, I agree with you. Footsteps, uh, air, um, the sound of, of, of breathing, um, all of those things populate the movie um they haunt the movie with you know a sense of authenticity but also with a sense of kind of intent impending uh um threat and mm-hmm. that is uh that's i think what in part helps drive you know create the tension of the movie that um 
that I, I hope will keep audiences uh, you know, glued to their seats. It's it's waiting for that other shoe to drop, Dan. It's <laughs> where's that bullet coming from? Um, right. And that that will scare the bejeebus out of anybody. You know, one Good. more one more question before I let you go. I'm curious yeah. now that you have jumped into the narrative forum. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself and yourself as a director that you can now take forward? Will it impact your documentary work? Uh, will it impact future narratives? I'm curious. I mean, I could I could probably you know talk uh, at some length about that question. It's it, there's so much to to unravel there. I would say, I mean, the first thing I learned is is that you know storytelling is storytelling. Um, and whether it's a documentary or whether it's a feature, the objective is the same, and that's to get to the truth of the story. Um, and you know, I I was delighted and and you know somewhat surprised that the tool set that I had developed as a journalist and as a documentary filmmaker uh, was perfectly prepared me. I shouldn't say perfectly prepared me, but helped prepare me in a, in a uh, you know in a deeply meaningful way for the work of a, you know, a fiction film director, because, uh, you know, both in journalism and documentary, the goal is to create uh, an intimate space where your subjects reveal themselves unselfconsciously. And, you know, I had become somewhat adept at doing that as a documentary filmmaker, and I was able to convey that set of skills to uh, a feature film set. Of course, the big difference is a feature film set is, uh, you know, the size of a, of uh, an ocean liner, and you know, a documentary uh, set is the size of a, a, a small little rowboat. And so, you know, the the ability to steer that ship and maneuver it quickly um, is, is very different. And so, you have to do a lot more preparation and forethought uh, for the feature. You can't live as much in the moment as you would like to or you know as, as perhaps I've been accustomed to as a documentary filmmaker um, but the idea of using intimacy the tools of intimacy authenticity emotion and picture and sound all of those things uh, I was able to bring with me from my prior experience as a journalist and a documentary filmmaker and it just uh, reinforced in my head the idea that um, um, you know, that the chief responsibility of uh, a filmmaker is the same responsibility as a journalist or a a documentary uh, filmmaker, which is to convey a story um, with uh, with honesty, um, with emotion, and, um, you know, uh, well, honesty and emotion, I think, are probably the best. (laughs) The two things that matter the most, um, and so that was it was affirming that I could that I could rely on those those tools um, in the making of the of the feature. And that was my exclusive interview with writer director Dan Krause talking about the Kill Team. It I can't recommend it highly enough. It is an incredible. It really plays like a psychological thriller. Uh, if you want to see the documentary, the documentary, uh, I think you can find it around on streaming services um, from 2013. It is also called The Kill Team. 
But if you want to learn more about the real soldier, Private Adam Winfield, and the actual trial and all the underlying events that happened there in Kandahar Valley, you can Google the Maywand District Murders and find out everything you want to know about these soldiers that essentially murdered at least three civilians. Uh, and that's what uh, put Private Winfield on his path uh, of being forced to grow up and forced to face uh, the realities of the world, of war, and what life can throw at you. So that is all the time we have today for Behind the Lens After Hours. Um, Behind the Lens proper. We'll be back next week, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And in the interim, you can find movie reviews, interviews, trailers, and more in print and online 24-7. And, of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 